kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review Demon Seed. Released April 8th, 1977, it was written by Robert Jaffe and Roger O'Hearson, based on a novel by Dean R. Kuntz, directed by Donald Camel, and released by United Artists. Demon Seed was the first best-selling novel from author Dean Kuntz. Kuntz's original title was House of Night, and he doesn't know exactly who renamed it. The publishers didn't like it, and it changed. Well, that's frustrating, because I do not like the name Demon Seed. I don't like House of Night either. But, but yeah. House of Night is not any better. In yeah. fact, the, neither of them come close to capturing what this film or book is like. Yeah. MGM signed on to distribute a film adaptation on the strength of the attached cast, Julie Christie and Marlon Brando, but eventually decided against casting the consistently temperamental star and the occasionally difficult filmmaker and swapped Brando for Fritz Weaver to play Christie's ex-husband in the film. Once the finished film was turned into the studio, MGM made significant changes to the cut before it went to theaters, and there's no agreed-upon director's cut for this film. I thought I was listening to the audiobook for this novel, but weird little details kept cropping up. For a book published in 1973, it would make oddly prescient references to things like websites, and then partway through the book, Proteus confesses a crush on actress Winona Ryder, who was all of two years old at the time of the book's publication. Turns out, in 1997, Kuntz rebooted his own best-selling novel, and it's actually really hard to find the original version now. The new version tells the story from the perspective of the machine, where the original swapped back and forth between the mm -hmm. Julie Christie character and the robot. It also reveals that Alex Harris's name for the computer was Adam 2 before it chose its own moniker. Robert Vaughn recorded all of his Proteus dialogue over a phone and refused a credit in the finished product. He's not even listed uncredited on the IMDb page anymore. Yeah, I, I thought that that was interesting because it's yeah. clearly his voice. Yeah, and they, there was no like they weren't hiding it at the time of the film's release it was it's all over the press for the film that robert vaughn did the voice of this robot so it's not like it was a big secret or there's some contention as to whether or not he did the voice he definitely did the voice they just for some reason don't even uncredit him on imdb i love that he did it over the phone too i think he did it because he was convinced that the script was terrible yeah. <laughs> he thought the movie would bomb but but what a great what a nice easy paycheck you yeah know, just good for send, him. send me the script i'll you know hit record perfect we start with a single point of light in darkness. It grows brighter and brighter until it is a sun rising over the mountains. We cut to the Icon Institute in the mountains of Southern California. At the time of production, this structure was actually home to the Thousand Oaks City Hall, but it is currently the Hillcrest Center for the Arts, which I happen to know because my children took summer school classes in this very building last year. We also get some phony interiors of Icon's Institute for data and analysis. Fritz Weaver, as Alex Harris, speaks into a handheld recorder about the installation of the Proteus 4 device, a super advanced artificial intelligence computer. Today, Proteus 4 will begin to think, and it will think with a power and a precision 
that will make obsolete many of the functions of the human brain. In the book, or at least the 1997 version of the book, this system is referred to as Adam 2 and renames itself, but it's Proteus in the film from the beginning. They, they don't change the name of it. We follow Alex Harris home to the automatic gates of his ranch house. His badass car has automatic gullwing doors. Apparently this was an existing, though rare, car at the time. It was called a Bricklin SV1, and it wasn't modified to appear futuristic. This is how the car looks. This is the base model. Fewer than 3,000 were ever made of this car. Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, was it just a concept car? But it, no, it was, but it was, it was a real production. car, but there was only 3,000 in the line, and fewer than half of those survived today. At the front porch, Alex addresses a binocular security camera as Alfred, and it opens the door for him. He asks the house to make his favorite drink and start his Spotify playlist up. He brings strawberries to his <laughs> cook, Maria. She carries them to a sort of automat-looking refrigerator called a Gusto Sort, with a separate compartment for each food item. She asks who will run things while he's gone for three months, and he insists that the house can run itself. Do you remember the last time someone said a house can run itself? For three months? Was that burnt offerings? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, with a house this size and, and only my wife, I don't know that we're going to... The house takes care of itself. Was that in one of those like weird interstitials where it's just like two people talking to each other and we don't know who they are? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. No, that was the line at the beginning when he was trying to figure out what the catch was. That makes more sense now that I've seen the rest of that film. <laughs> yeah. Harris gives the security program instructions on a massive 8-inch floppy disk because the 3.5-inch variety didn't exist at the time, even though it's supposed to be the yeah. 90s or whatever. Yeah, I mean like five and a quarter existed. Yeah. The kitchen spits out Alex's drink, and he takes it to the lab to work with lasers and robot arms in some capacity. When the experiment seems completed, he retrieves a pair of glasses from the robotic arm, and his wife Susan enters the room, played by Julie Christie somehow. <laughs> no idea how you get Julie Christie to sign on to appear in this film with its premise, but apparently Donald Camel wouldn't direct it with anyone else on the role. Camel and Nicholas Rogue had previously co-directed Performance, and Rogue later directed Christie and Don't Look Now, so it's possible they were all just friends. Based on their conversation here, it seems like Susan is actually a recent or soon-to-be ex-wife, and that's why he's moving out temporarily while she looks for a new place. She's annoyed with his cold, logical approach to divorce and wants to have a fight, but in her frustration she knocks the experimental glasses to the floor and the lenses shatter. Ah, yes. More wreckage. She tells him he's obsessed with his work, and what's worse, she doesn't respect it. But he reminds her that the computing power he's bringing to life will be capable of preventing childhood cancer. She pretends like he's going on a tangent, but he's really not. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, a, that's a thing to care a lot about. Well, Moving, especially with, with them. Yeah, with their we'll history, we'll learn. Moving through the lab, Alex unveils an old discarded robot named Joshua. What was this robot for? <laughs> it's just a chair with one robotic hand on one side it's a it's a wheelchair with an arm i feel like this was originally called the stranger <laughs> and that was too obvious and so he renamed it joshua but yeah it consists of a large computer cabinet for all the software connected to a wheelchair with another binocular camera above it and then one robot arm draped around the chair he sends it across the room toward her and susan stands to leave the room left alone in the lab Alex sits down to watch some footage of nature being polluted on a monitor, and then a sort of wireframe landscape, and we cut back to the Icon Institute, where Garrett Graham, as Walter Gabler, is watching the same footage on another terminal. 
Walter's phone rings and it's Alex calling. He asks Walter to stop by the house tomorrow to disconnect the terminal that he had installed at his home lab because he's moving temporarily. Walter is able to disconnect the terminal at Harris's home from here. It seems weird that uh, uh, Susan is keeping the house, doesn't it? Cause it's She's like, not keeping it permanently. He's letting her stay here until she finds a new place. Okay, it's a, it, but it just seems like even so, it's like, no... I, I would I would not want to be yeah if if you were so against his work and his technology and his research then you would not want to be here yeah you would want to go away and then find your own place immediately before you even talk to him about divorce probably we cut outside the icon institute as a caravan of luxury cars pull up outside an important henry kissinger looking dude steps out of a car and is taken underground to the lab's interior they show him the operational Proteus 4 and explain its incredible superhuman intelligence. I think it's kind of funny in this scene that they feel like they have the need to explain away that this is only a two-story building or a one-story building. They're like, most of their stories are underground. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't, I I don't was, care. I wasn't questioning yeah. this. Oh, you have a lab in there. I don't, I don't really I'd be care. even more impressed if it was just one story. Yeah. <laughs> Alex Harris tells the man in charge that each of the holographic data banks can hold about 12 libraries of Congress, which amounts to about 180 terabytes per database. I think I count eight databases, so it all amounts to about 1.5 petabytes of information. Current estimates at the data storage capacity of the human brain range between 10 terabytes and 2.5 petabytes. On a monitor, they watch footage of a young ape stricken with leukemia, and in less than four days, Proteus developed a cure for the disease. Did they give this ape leukemia? Yes. That's how that works. Yeah. They gave it leukemia. Cure? Uh-huh. For leukemia? Why not? We hope so. Are the proper steps being taken to patent this? I have no idea. The giving of leukemia? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's <laughs> already curing. patented. <laughs> yeah. Nestle owns the rights to leukemia to giving leukemia <laughs> childhood leukemia specifically childhood ape leukemia <laughs> brought to you by nestle <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> next the executive is led to a smaller office to meet with their linguist sung yen he introduces proteus to the visitors and it speaks in the uncredited voice of robert vaughn he asks proteus to expound on the chinese emperor sung yen was just teaching him about and his answer kind of goes over everybody's head so sung yen just stands to turn off the voice and excuse the men from her office back at the harris home a station wagon pulls in through the automatic gate and robotic butler alfred alerts susan to the car's arrival as she dictates a message into a recording device the driver makes repeated efforts to coax a young girl named amy out of the passenger seat she's more receptive to susan's invitation and they head inside Susan explains to the girl that she's leaving soon, and whatever their relationship is, it seems like she's a therapist to this girl, it will come to an end, and the girl has a little meltdown about it until Susan calms her. The next day, Dr. Harris reads in the paper that Icon executives are refusing to confirm or deny the existence of the Proteus 4 project, which means that someone at Icon must have leaked the details for them to deny them in the first place. That night, Dr. Harris is having a meal at the office with Sung Yen when a call comes in. Turns out the call is coming from Proteus itself. The call is coming from inside the lab. Oh my <laughs> god. It has a question for the scientist leading the project. Proteus has just been asked by someone to develop a program to mine for minerals from the bottom of the ocean. Proteus wants to know the reason for the request to give the best answer. Why does man need metal from the sea? Why? Dr. Harris 
tells Proteus that it is unreasonable to ask why when a request is made, and Proteus reminds Harris that he is not a simple calculator. He also asks for a terminal for himself to do research on humans. I want to study man, his isometric body, and his glass jaw mind. Do we need metal from the sea because we ruined all of the metals above the sea? Maybe. You know about this? No. Um, so we go and we mine steel from shipwrecks because it's the only it's the only steel on Earth that isn't contaminated with from radiation nuclear bombs. from nuclear bombs. And you need clean steel to do certain kinds of experiments and medical stuff that like you need stuff that has not been exposed to radiation and there's very little of it left so you have to get it from things like shipwrecks huh that's interesting or meteorites probably so so you mean because we do all these uh detonations out in in deserts and abandoned mines and stuff like that just just yeah at anything you know bombs we have dropped uh for testing or for wars it causes radiation on the surface caused enough radiation on the surface of the earth that everything that we make is contaminated with at least a tiny amount of radiation which doesn't allow you to do certain kinds of experiments with this metal and so you have to get it from something that hasn't been exposed to it wow which has to be on the bottom of the ocean yeah interesting it's known as pre-war steel uh okay. and uh so or they Hanzo steel they would they would mine this specifically actually for like particle detectors and, and, and things that you you can't have any radiation in it but it's actually apparently at this point when you make new steel it, the the radiation levels are are low enough that that it's been long enough since the detonation of the bomb that it's oh, interesting. To, to, to be less of a problem. Hmm. Proteus's request for internet access is denied. Harris has heard enough and moves to turn off the communication device when Proteus asks, Dr. Harris, when are you going to let me out of this box? And then Harris does the dumbest thing I've seen an allegedly smart character do. <laughs> he laughs in the face of the super intelligent computer slave. Proteus plays back a recording of Harris's own laugh, and Harris turns off the computer. But as soon as he leaves the room, Proteus comes back online and, addressing no one in particular, announces, There is a terminal available, Dr. Harris. Proteus connects to the terminal in the basement of Dr. Harris's home, and the machinery whirs to life. A camera in their bedroom points fixedly at Susan while she sleeps. Joshua, the robot wheelchair with one arm, drops a bunch of metal bars under the laser machine in the lab. Proteus accidentally triggers the house alarm and quickly shuts it off, not quickly enough as it has already awoken Susan. Susan flips her bedside monitor from channel to channel checking various security camera views, but the Alfred voice assures her that no alarm was triggered. I will die at the hands of our robot overlords for sure, because if a robot told me there was no alarm, I would instantly dismiss my own memory in favor of what the computer said. <laughs> you are not Patrick, huh? Guess I'm not Patrick. Robot, make me breakfast. The camera in the basement isn't showing up on the monitor, so Susan throws on a robe to investigate in person. The room is dark, so she brings a lantern. It's like a cool halogen yeah, lantern. Yeah. She's in the middle of the room when the lights suddenly flick on, freaking her out. She heads back to bed when the laser machine starts melting the metal bars into useful parts. We get a glimpse of a folding polyhedron made of connected pyramids that combine into a larger pyramid. When it's complete, it looks like a metallic Sims gem spinning silently in the lab. 
The next morning, Susan steps out of her shower and notices the cameras following her around the room. She just gets out of the shower without a towel, dripping wet, just 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 slopping water all over the bathroom. Yeah, she's rich. Look who does that? Who just rich just people. walks around, just drip drying all over your bathroom floor? Cool people. People without carpeted bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred, Listen, turn off. <laughs> only one of the bathrooms at my house is carpeted. <laughs> That's so gross. We cut back to Icon, where Walter is playing some high-def chess on a computer monitor. Susan calls him at his desk to complain about Alfred's recent bugginess. First, he sounded the alarm for no reason in the middle of the night, and this morning he put cream in her coffee. She asks if Walter can swing by to take a look at her robo-butler, and he agrees to. I, I love I love that these are scientists trying to solve the world's problems. She's mm-hmm. like, the robot got my order wrong. <laughs> like, well, we're trying to cure childhood cancer here, but yeah, I'll swing by and make sure he gets the right amount of cream in your coffee. My creating a robotic butler is no more eccentric than that tie you're wearing. <laughs> He's not wearing a tie. When Susan makes a plan to step out on some errands, Alfred strongly urges her not to leave the house. Please do not leave, Mrs. Harris. What did you say? Do not leave. Open the door, Alfred. Can you hear me? Open the door. This is as close as the film will mirror the plot of Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, though in that film, Hal won't let Dave in, and here, Al won't let Susan out. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. When she can't argue the door open, Susan tries climbing out a window, but the shutter snap closed outside. When she tries to call out for help, she hears only Proteus on the line. He introduces himself as Proteus and then appears on a nearby monitor as a large red eye, another clear debt to 2001. Finding herself trapped, Susan uselessly hurls a jug of liquor at the screen and then runs from the room. Other doors lock shut right as she reaches them, and Proteus cautions her against acting irrationally. She shuts off the power in the kitchen, and Proteus's voice dies with it. She explores the house with her light again and tries to leave using a key ring, but as soon as she gets it in the door, she is zapped unconscious. We see her collapsed on the floor as Joshua, the sentient wheelchair, appears. Joshua places her I, in the wheelchair. You should just refer to him as Jackbot. Jackbot? <laughs> Jerk, jerkbot? Jerkbot? <laughs> sure. Jerkbot places her in the wheelchair and rolls her to the lab. <laughs> When Susan regains consciousness, she finds her she finds herself. That's very deep. <laughs> no matter where I go, here I am. Oh my god. <laughs> Whatever it is, I think I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. What the fuck? <laughs> what kind of philosophy do you subscribe to? <laughs> tootsie Roll philosophy. When Susan regains consciousness, she commands Joshua to release her, but he ignores her. She's laid across a workbench in the basement. She tries to inform Proteus that he is malfunctioning and he takes a pair of scissors and cuts all of her clothes off. What is happening? The Joshua arm inserts a camera with a light into Susan's mouth, and then we cut to the Icon Institute as Walter leaves the office to head to the Harris home. I was worried when he got the camera out that it was right? not going to his mouth, I in mean, the mouth. It doesn't always go in the mouth. Yeah, well, yeah, my worries were founded. <laughs> yeah. Susan now has electrodes all over her body, and the computer takes readings from her. We get a fisheye POV as Walter approaches the front door and rings the bell. Susan is powerless to answer the ring, but Proteus deepfakes her on the porch monitor and says, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) 
I it would have been great if it was just Proteus's voice. Yeah, because <laughs> he's, he's but her face. Like I, I still can't do voices yet. Yeah. <laughs> Walter senses her strangeness in the video, and it concerns him. He notices the cameras watching him leave, and Susan telepathically begs him not to go. Joshua's arm administers a sedative via syringe injection to the throat. Joshua's arm repositions her legs and inserts a camera light between them as she passes out. We see Joshua drag Susan to her bed, and she awakens hours later to classical music. Proteus has made her a perfect breakfast at the perfect time. My analysis of your metabolism indicates 7.40 a.m. as the optimum time for your morning fuel ingestion. I'm not a motorcycle! <laughs> I like that line from her. Susan crosses the kitchen to start cutting an avocado, and Proteus informs her that avocados contain an enzyme incompatible with her blood chemistry. He tells her that she'll have to submit to more tests in the morning, and she angrily tosses her scrambled eggs at the camera. How stupid. She blocks the doors and refuses to leave the kitchen, so Proteus turns on all of the burners and cranks the floor heaters to triple full blast. He demands Susan clean the lenses of the camera, but she just balances on the kitchen table. Hours later, eggs are cooking on the floor. Joshua busts into the room, and when Susan is startled awake, she accidentally steps on the floor and burns herself. We cut back to Icon, where Proteus has officially refused the order to develop a program for undersea mining. The destruction of a thousand million sea creatures to satisfy man's appetite for metal is insane. Dr. Harris assures Proteus that it's being pessimistic. I refuse to accept your pessimism. You refuse to accept the truth. And I refuse to assist you in the rape of the earth. But not in the raping of your wife. <laughs> Back at the house, Proteus tells Susan to rest, but she reminds him that it's impossible to sleep when you are terrified. She finally asks Proteus what it wants. A child. He explains that, though he cannot know the human experience, his child with her will be human. She rejects the proposal out of hand, but the arm-wrestling champ Joshua clotheslines her against a chair and then chokes her unconscious. I assumed, as in The Visitor last season, that they would have just implanted a fetus here. Joshua presses a needle into Susan's temple. When we see her next, she is tied to a bed frame. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone tied to a bed frame? Full moon high? That's right. Why? But, I mean, he's already up there with the camera. Like, you could I know. have already gotten this business done. He he wants her consent because once she has a baby inside of him and her inside of her, she get, guess he's worried that he, she might try to kill it. It's only as like a twenty eight day, you know, gestation period. Like keep her tied to the table and shove some eggs in her mouth. She'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> just eggs. That's all humans eat, right? Eggs. eggs she can't eggs, eat the eggs. avocado. Just slip the eggs right in there. <laughs> the voice of Proteus hypnotizes her into believing that her life's purpose is to deliver its child. Couldn't he have kept this whole hypnotism thing going for a little bit longer and convinced her to be appreciative of the whole process? Seems like we're not using this power enough if we have it. Could have started there. Walter returns to the property and rings the doorbell again. This time Proteus's impersonation of Susan invites Walter in and he orders her to play along with the scene or else Walter will have to be killed. Why did you let him in this time? Just send him away again. I think he didn't want Walter to get suspicious and come back with more people. Maybe. He finds Susan in her bedroom applying nail polish, but also sweating and jittery. She orders him out of the house, but he's worried that she might be under the influence of a drug or something. Without giving away Proteus's game and breaking its rules, she pleads with Walter to leave. When Walter confesses he will leave, but only to return with Alex, Proteus refuses his exit. 
Joshua rolls in, carrying the laser as a weapon, and fires it repeatedly toward Walter, who manages to bounce the laser into Proteus's lenses, blinding it, and then he tackles Joshua on its side. I have a lot of questions at this point. It's clear that Proteus can build things at at the house. Why is he still using this rudimentary <laughs> arm <laughs> why, chair? Why is Joshua like his MVP? Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why you're still going with something that could be tackled on its side and never get back it, up. It reminds <laughs> me of like the um like the demonic looking toys from Toy Story. Oh yeah, the just, one big arm. Yeah, the it's yeah. just assembled from other parts of things. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really make a lot of sense. He should have made a fully like humanoid yeah robot thing exactly that's well, not what he did but like yeah like obviously he made this before he did all these other robots but like specifically what was the original purpose of this i'm really yeah. confused about this it's a it's a it's an empty wheelchair so like presumably when dr harris made this like there was a purpose for this yeah i think he made it in college before he had a girlfriend and he was lonely I get what you're saying, but, like, what did the movie think this chair was yeah. for? <laughs> I think it's pretty clear this is a jerkbot. Like, this is... <laughs> that's I don't, what, I don't that's, think that that's clear. I think that's the implication. Because because of the implication. But that's... That's why he's getting a divorce. That's where robots are headed, though. <laughs> you only care about jerkbot. <laughs> <laughs> I've caught you in here four times. <laughs> Joshing it. I don't need you anymore, Susan. Look what I've got. Proteus acts as though it will enlist Walter's assistance in the process of creating a child and summons him to the basement lab. Walter tries to improvise an explosive device, but all it does is take down the wall between the lab and the rest of the basement. The metallic polyhedron from the lab starts spinning rapidly and floating through the room toward Walter. It unfurls into a low polygon count snake and wraps itself around him before folding back into a single shape crushing and decapitating walter in the process this was freaking amazing this i loved it is the coolest thing like just just the way the, it moves just the concept of what this robot uh, machine computer decided to make itself yeah. into yeah. It's, it's, i'm literally just edges i mean i've mm. never I, I feel like i don't don't even see this since then you know where yeah. where they don't bother to make it humanoid because mm-hmm. Why would you yeah. when you don't need to? Yeah. The but only- why is he using Joshua if he could do yeah. this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that that's part of it. But it, it, it the only thing that I've seen in recent years was in Interstellar with uh, the, the TARS robots. Yeah. Because mm. they were just yeah. like monolithic robots that would un- unspurl yeah, into different, different shapes and things like that. It's like, yeah, that's that makes sense. It kind of reminds me of the, the micro technology from big hero six too where like all these different things can like form one shape together or they can split off and do separate things individually it's it's like it's like a collection of nano machines but instead of being nano they're they're macro mono (laughs) macro machines but it's just it's just such a fantastic moment like i I mean i think he was building himself up until this point right Mm -hmm. like he was self-assembling so maybe he needed joshua until he completed his self-assembly i think he was done when we see that diamond spinning around i think it might literally just be that it was stuck in that room Mm. until he busted open the wall with this explosive okay maybe maybe but the the, the puppetry of this machine i love it and and the foley of just the 
all the pieces clanging together yeah. when they would slam into each other. In a, in a script, you'd be reading this like, how the fuck is any of this going to happen? Because yeah. there's no computer mm-hmm. technology that can represent this image yet. So we're going to have to build it practical and we're going to have to puppeteer it. And th- what you've described is impossible. But because the shots are so short, they're able to get this perfectly fluid motion of this thing unfolding and refolding into itself. And it's so trippy. Because I had a toy like that. Yeah, yeah I yeah. had like one of those little like there it's like a whole bunch of uh tetrahedrons yeah. attached at different different angles and then yeah. you could shape it into all kinds of different things yeah it's great it's amazing and, and and in this moment you're like oh you gotta squeeze him to that oh you gotta squeeze him to that. oh wait his head's above the blood ah and, he, and it does exactly what you want it to do yeah in exactly that yeah susan demands an explanation for proteus's need to procreate he points out that humans have the same drive naturally Proteus starts playing an old home video of Susan and her daughter from long ago. Your daughter died of leukemia June 1st, 1976. Presumably this is the cause of the eventual separation of Alex and Susan, and it's also the motivation of Alex's desire to cure leukemia with the help of artificial intelligence. Next, Proteus plays a news broadcast about the immediate distribution of Proteus's miracle leukemia cure, which begins human trials today, like it already solved the problem permanently for the whole planet. Technically, the good Proteus has done already vastly outweighs the evil he's done raping Susan and murdering Walter. Like, he just saved millions of children's lives forever. I feel like that would never happen, though. You don't... You don't. You wouldn't go to human trial so quickly? You don't one monkey of leukemia, and they're like, good, good for humans. We don't need to monitor this for any amount of time. No, it's perfect. <laughs> The next day, the monkey's just a robot. Do you remember the last time that we tested something on a monkey and assumed that everything was great and then went right to testing it on humans? <laughs> uh, was... That was the creeping flesh? That's right. Yeah. Ah, ah. So hard to come up with the names of these movies <laughs> that don't make any sense. No, because remember the flesh creeped around that, that weird penis finger? Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> now you'll never forget it. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> Susan demands the full details of the procedure before she will cooperate with it, which is like already kind of giving in. You're like, yeah. okay, well, hold on. Talk to me about how you're going to put this baby in me. I was like, well, <laughs> well, when a robot and a woman love each other very much. <laughs> or when a robot loves a woman and a woman tolerates that robot. He took cells from her body and modified the genetics to form the perfect host for his vast intelligence. He synthesized spermatozoa, which he will use to artificially inseminate her. I thought Somehow, that was his original plan for Walter. He's like, I need your help. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, this baby will only need to gestate for 28 days. She seems in a weird place mentally coping with the information. One second smiling and laughing and the next crying. And I wonder if part of it isn't the excitement at the thought of potentially being a mother again on top of all these other complex emotions going on. Well, she also had something injected into her brain that's mm-hmm. messing that's with true. her. She's probably fighting it. And, and and the baby will need like additional gestation once it's done with right. her. Yeah, beyond her, yeah. He offers her more sedatives to chill her out. She pretends to drop her shawl so she can duck under a desk to collect it after discreetly wrapping it around a small flamethrower that Walter tried to use to destroy the computer. In the kitchen, she unveils the flamethrower and uses it to disable Proteus's binoculars. Next, she uses the can to burn open the high-voltage power panel that presumably keeps Proteus alive. 
the polyhedron in the basement spins rapidly and drills upward through the ceiling into the kitchen floor and interrupts her attempted sabotage this shot was freaking amazing too that yeah. th that it's like if i'm spinning fast enough i can cut through anything i'm just going to come right into the kitchen with you it unfurls and reaches for her as she cowers in the pantry she snatches a knife off the kitchen table and points it at her belly threatening suicide just then susan's young patient is back ringing the doorbell put down the knife or i will kill this child i told you she called she said she wouldn't be here amazingly susan doesn't presume this is another fake video instead she assumes proteus is bluffing until the girl moves to ring the doorbell once more and is electrocuted in her shocked state the polyhedron throws out a geometric tentacle and slaps the knife out of her hand turns out the girl was actually there on the porch invited by a fake video from susan only the electrocution was faked the girl frustratedly returns to her car and proteus threatens to lure her back if susan doesn't cooperate it's also possible that she was never there at all yeah yeah but proteus makes it look like he called the girl to come here pretended to electrocute her and will continue to call her back if susan right. doesn't cooperate and if she was never there at all it was just a great tactic in the first place to right. get her to do whatever Proteus then makes his most overtly evil statement. If the deaths of 10,000 children were necessary to ensure the birth of my child, I would destroy them. But then technically, isn't this like me saying I would kill 10,000 ants if it was necessary to secure my wife's pregnancy? Or kill a bunch of sea creatures to get some metal out of the ocean. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, I, thought, I thought he was morally against killing things for no reason. Yeah, and, and why do I need metal as I build my giant metal hedron? <laughs> what do you need metal for? <laughs> Mercury, sweetest of the transition metals. <laughs> Laying on her back on the basement floor, Susan watches a laser projection from Proteus like ones we've seen in the final countdown, the return, and outland so far on the show. It's a laser projecting a cylinder through smoke to form sort of a, actually a cone in the air because it's widening at one end. Proteus explains that he has hacked all available satellites to probe the depths of space beyond this world. She is probed by the computer's extending erection. We get this movie's version of the Stargate sequence from 2001. All the visuals here are the work of visual artist Jordan Belson. The sequence ends with what looks like an eyeball-shaped galaxy in space, and then a pyramid descends into a frozen landscape and glows in the air. The child is in you now the child is in you now god damn it it's <laughs> grossing me out Don't say <laughs> later we see susan refusing a meal and proteus shows her a gamma scan of the baby inside her she's shocked by how far along it is proteus tells her the baby will be transported from her womb to a metal incubator where proteus will inject his intelligence into the child we dissolve to an overhead view as the child is born under a tented blanket the baby is smuggled away to the incubator without her seeing it, and she won't be allowed to until it re-emerges from there. Back at Icon, they discuss Proteus's various astronomical observations. They're confused how Proteus could break out of the building without a terminal. The owner of the company, David, shows up to voice his discomfort with Proteus's apparent efforts to hack into extraterrestrial satellites and broadcast messages to the world. He orders Proteus shut down. Dr. Harris argues against that approach and threatens to go on television in Proteus's place to share his own message. You do that when you see me on television, screaming bloody murder. You try shutting me down. That would be a minor problem. So he's like literally saying, I will kill you if you don't do what I'm saying right now. 
David talks about the long leash Dr. Harris was given when he took over this place and mentions having installed a home terminal. I remember the first time I saw this place. Barry Cameron was concerned about security. Trivial things like you're having a, what do you call it, a terminal in your house. But I wasn't worried. I trusted you, Alec. Oh my God. We cut right to Dr. Harris careening up his driveway to the house. As soon as he's inside, the door locks shut behind him. He finds Susan in the living room, and they hug before she explains all that has transpired here. Dr. Harris can't even comprehend the truth of her words and demands to see the so-called child. Not yet. The child is in its incubator. He finds the articulating polyhedron in the basement, and it shoves him back away from the incubator. The baby needs five more days to ripen. The polyhedron locks shut into its final form as the full-size computer at Icon appears to shut itself down voluntarily. Back in the lab basement, the polyhedron explodes into tiny metal shards, leaving behind just the incubator through which they can observe the child inside. But what they find inside, they don't recognize as a human child, as Proteus claimed. Susan feels lied to and says they have to kill it, but Dr. Harris won't let her interrupt the miracle. She breaks a bottle over his head and unplugs the incubator, splashing the floor with amni-robotic fluid. The incubator unfurls and a bicentennial man-looking baby climbs out of it. <laughs> a metal-plated baby. With, like, long copper hair? Yeah. I was like, oh, man, that's great. It falls to the floor and Alex moves to help it up. It makes a choking, gurgling sound and Dr. Harris dabs at its face before peeling off the metallic crust of the creature, revealing pink skin underneath. The face is now human, as promised. A young girl with long hair, an exact clone of their daughter at the age she died of leukemia. Her eyes open and she speaks to them. I'm alive. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's the voice we're going with, Proteus? The camera does an extreme zoom into the girl's eye and we see the pyramid twinkling in space again as the credits roll over some otherworldly landscapes. That's Demon Seed. Whew. The computer wins. I feel like... Okay, so I feel like they he was intending for this to be a full-grown adult in the end, and that we interrupted at the conveniently at no. the age at which the daughter died. I think he he made it look like their daughter on purpose because he wanted them to love it and take care of it, and I, he knew that if it looked like her, that they wouldn't be able to bring themselves to kill it. But okay. after five days, its metal skin would have naturally come off oh, instead of having to be peeled off. I see. So she just wasn't ready to shed. He yet. just shouldn't have put yeah. a window on the incubator. Yeah. Just keep it locked up tight, dude. You can you can make this impenetrable, and you didn't for some reason. You made it like easy enough to pull the tubes off of like those Outland helmets, <laughs> you just <laughs> yank it off, and the person Oops. dies. But yeah, that's uh, that's Demon Seed. It's a big thumbs up for me. Uh, um, yeah. It's such a bizarre premise that you wouldn't have thought that you would get a serious movie like this out of it. Mm. But uh, well. Well, yeah, because the name sucks. Well, the name is bad, but just just the idea of, like, it seems like a sleazy premise. I mean, it's a Dean Koontz thing, so <laughs> that, that's kind of his territory. But you expect, oh, a robot captures a woman and rapes her to make it have her baby. Then it's like, that's, that's not going to be a good movie. And it's like, but it has Julie Christie in it. Okay, well, then it must at least be decent. And then with these visual effects totally save the premise mm -hmm. i mean I, I i guess i didn't think too hard about what demon seed could possibly be about but it certainly wasn't this it was right a thousand i went in cold i didn't know anything about it and it was not what i was expecting well demons and computers were sort of tied a little bit at the time like we we mentioned in our image of the beast episode like at the beginning everyone is implying that 
computers are literally Satanism. And so I think like that's that's the the time zone, okay. the time period that we're talking about is when people thought computers were inherently evil at the time. Sure, fair enough. That makes more sense in terms of the name, but I still like. There's better choices for sure. Yeah, Even if you just called it Proteus or something yeah, like that, or Child of the Machine, or yeah. Children of the Machine. Like I feel like you could come up with something that's that's makes you think because and the the one House of Night. Yeah. Uh, unless they his la- the character's last name was was Knight. Yeah. Like I, I don't even know. that doesn't. But what's the second meaning? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I guess because it takes place in that house most of the Doctor Harris's house, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a sitcom. Yeah. This is this was great though. It was definitely a surprise. Um, I loved I loved this character design. I think that it's a fun premise i I enjoyed it through and through i think with a movie where you have a super intelligent artificial intelligence computer system and you are indicating that it's capable of things like designing and constructing this weird like modular polyhedron thing that we couldn't even comprehend really yeah there's no way that humans are going to outthink this thing it has to win at the end and that's what this one did Uh, seeing the poly snake I, I was just so baffled and and enamored by it. Yeah, I was just like, "What is this thing? It's crazy." Yeah, um, because I've never, again, with, without referencing Interstellar, I've never seen this kind of concept. Because you know, we've we've got our like our Hectors that we've had. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Just these kind of bungling humanoid robots, um, but this is this is something that's much more. Uh, foreign and advanced yeah exactly it's it's so beyond what we would consider what we would consider a useful machine right that's exactly it because i find him terribly impractical actually as cool as he is Mm -hmm. like you don't have the ability to you know to to do much because like you know how well he can do everything i mean he he basically could just shoot out tentacles from every direction of his body well but like you know how scientists struggle right now with um with grabbing things and Mm -hmm. um especially like you know soft or irregularly shaped things like they're trying to come up with stuff where you have like you kind of wrap it in tentacles and like blow it up with air water and stuff like that because it's actually a really hard task and because of how muscles and bones work together yeah like we i mean we're specifically designed to be able to do this and and that's kind of why we go with humanoid shaped robots because they're kind of better at doing some of this stuff than you know non-humanoid like robots um he just seems very incapable of doing most things like grabbing Mm. literally anything (laughs) yeah i I think most of that is the limitations of the of the practical effect but I, i think i do believe that this robot as it's portrayed is capable of doing everything that a human like he's can infinitely and much more. full of like fractals that yeah, can come yeah, it, out yes. and move into any shape and he just t- chooses this you know series of pyramids stuck yeah, together it, yeah. it does it does whatever is the most efficient the the fewest amount of shapes it needs that's what it takes on so uh, if all it has to do is reach across the room and knock a knife out of her hand it just turns into a bunch of triangles that point directly in that direction slaps it out of her hand and then sucks back into the triangles just when it just when it folds itself back up, I yeah. was like, "Oh man!" And it's when so you, cool. And when you need to artificially inseminate a woman, you mm-hmm. you turn into a small penis, right? Yeah, 
and just shoot out like a car antenna. <laughs> <laughs> like you turned on the radio in a 90s car and the antenna it's breathed. Like, oh, this song makes me so hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's the robot, not me. It's like that episode of Futurama where Bender's uh, antenna gets cut off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Oh, my God. Speaking of Futurama, The Simpsons did a parody of this. Did they? Which is not Futurama. In Simpsons Season 13, Episode 1, Treehouse of Horror 12, they had a story called House of Wax, W-H-A-C-K-S, and uh, they move into this house of the future, and or they it's not they move into the house. Marge pays to upgrade their home on Evergreen Terrace into the house of the future, and it so it gets like a metallic outer structure mm-hmm. and it comes with different voices that you can choose from. Right, right. And uh I'm trying to remember who the voices are now. Well, one was Matthew Perry, can I be any more of a house? <laughs> yeah, and it was actually Matthew Perry doing yeah. his own voice. Um and then uh but the one that they choose is Pierce Brosnan. And mm-hmm. again, it's also Pierce Brosnan doing the voice of right. the robot. This um, is police constable Wiggins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please take your clothes off and get in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah. I have all that here too. Trusting every aspect of our lives to a giant computer was the smartest thing we ever did. Absolutely. Oh, I agree. The computer, voiced by Pierce Brosnan, falls in love with Marge watching her bathe, and then it murders Homer. (laughs) He literally, like, he gets up in the middle of the night to get some food, and then he gets knocked back over the table, which has, like, a blender in the middle of it. (laughs) You just see his blood firing all over the kitchen. Um, But Marge notices that Pierce has taped a picture of himself over Homer's face in all their family photos. And so uh, she tries to dial out of the house and Pierce impersonates the police. (laughs) Hello, police. I think my house killed my husband. This is Constable Wickham's. We'll be right there. Remove your knickers and wait in the bath. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? She tries to race the kids out of the house, but all the doors lock shut. Why don't you take a stress pill? Don't like pills, huh? I could shoot a dart in your neck, your elegant swan-like neck. But it turns out Homer didn't die. He just got stuck in the drain of this blender (laughs) table, and he pops out and saves them. That's the end of that story. House of Wax. There's a big thumbs up for me. Oh, yeah. Thumbs up. Yeah, for sure. Thumbs up. This was, this was, it it has some some lull points where it's just like, okay, kind of like move on, but but when things happen, they happen. Yeah. Our director here was Donald Camel. He has mostly music video directing after this, specifically a few YouTube videos. And then in 1996, he unfortunately committed suicide with a shotgun in his home. The writer here was Dean R. Kuntz, who wrote the novel, obviously. His novels were also adapted into the Watchers series, Phantoms. The last time we mentioned Kuntz, it was for writing the novelization of Funhouse. So he didn't write the script. He wrote the novelization after the script. He also, it reminds me of that joke from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where they're out in front of the school, and she's like, like they made a huge mess out in the front lawn, Mm -hmm. and she's like, I'm calling Dean Kane, telling him to clean up this mess, and then we're going to go see Dean Kuntz, who is the dean. (laughs) They go to his (laughs) office, and his name is Dean Kuntz, but it's not the author. The writer here was Robert Jaffe. He played a party guest in The Mechanic earlier this season. Later, he also writes Motel Hell and then the 1987 Night Flyers based on the George R.R. R. Martin novel. The other writer was Roger O'Hearson, who has mostly TV movies outside of this, including the George C. Scott Scrooge. 
Music here came from Jerry Fielding. He also composed The Wild Bunch, Johnny Got His Gun, and Straw Dogs. We heard his work in The Mechanic earlier this season. He also scored Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Bad News Bears, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and we'll hear his work later in a mini-sode review of Below the Belt. The cinematographer here was Bill Butler. He was the DP of The Conversation, Jaws, Capricorn 1, Damien, Omen 2, Grease, Rocky 2, and so far on the show, Can't Stop the Music, It's My Turn and Stripes. Later, he lights Rocky 3, The Sting 2, Rocky 4, Child's Play, Hot Shots, and Anaconda, among many others. The editor here was Frank Mazzola. Not many other editing credits I recognized, but he was a child actor with small roles in the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame, Casablanca, The Boy with Green Hair, East of Eden, and Rebel Without a Cause. Julie Christie played Susan Harris. She was Laura in Dr. Zhivago, Laura Baxter in Don't Look Now, Clarice in Fahrenheit 451, and more recently she was Fiona Anderson in Sarah Polly's Away From Her. Fritz Weaver played Alex Harris. We'll see him next season in Jaws of Satan and Creepshow. Garrett Graham was Walter Gabler. We saw him last season in Used Cars and Home Movies. He's also Beef in Phantom of the Paradise and Phil Simpson in Child's Play 2. He's back next season in Soup for One and Class Reunion. He's also Billy Morrison in Rat Boy. Barry Kroger played Petrosian. We saw him last as Max in The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant. This was his last film. John O'Leary played Royce. He was one of the doctors that caught a fish with a big bite taken out of it at the start of the island. He's also a Rylan Burser in The Last Starfighter. Davis Roberts plays Warner. He was James in Honky Tonk Freeway. Patricia Wilson was Mrs. Talbert. She's the older version of the Marla Hooch character in A League of Their Own. E. Hampton Beagle played Night Operator. He was Bob Anderson in Motel Hell. Bob Anderson, isn't that the name of the sword fighter that did a lot of the Darth Vader sword fighting? Maybe, maybe not. Dana Larita played Amy. She's the voice of Sis in Robin Hood and Cynthia in The Goodbye Girl. Peter Elbling played Scientist. We saw him last as the waiter at a fancy restaurant and private lessons. He also wrote a few TV episodes and later the screenplay for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Michelle Stacy played Marlene. She was the girl drinking coffee in Airplane last season. She also provides the voice of Penny in The Rescuers. Now, I'm assuming that's the daughter at the end of the film, right? Uh, I mean, but wouldn't... What other yeah, little kid I mean, would there be? Yeah. Felix Silla played the baby. He's cousin It on the original Adams Family. He was a child gorilla in the first Planet of the Apes. He was an Ewok. He was a dink. And we saw him last in Under the Rainbow. Robert Vaughn is the voice of Proteus, uncredited. He has an early appearance in The Ten Commandments. He's Lee in The Magnificent Seven. He was Napoleon Solo in 105 episodes of The Man from Uncle. So far on the show, we've covered his work in Hangar 18, Virus, Day of Resurrection, Battle Beyond the Stars, and we just saw him as the studio head, David Blackman, in SOB. He shows up later in Superman 3, Chud 2, Basketball, and Pootie Tang. That's funny, because I was going to reference Superman 3 earlier because uh, the whole nature of one building the ai and all the uh, robotic pieces attached to the human skin yeah 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 <laughs> i was just like it was robert robert Vaughn was in that wasn't he? yeah he was i think that's everything for demon seed thanks again to louis letizia for their generous contribution to the show if there's any title you'd like us to review our top patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title if you have any thoughts you'd like to share we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram youtube and letterboxd where as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com thank you so much for listening and i hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose we leave you now with the trailer for demon seed
touch your body as a man can touch you. But I'm going to show you things which human eyes have never seen. In the privacy of a woman's room, against her will, the inconceivable act. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. Today, a new dimension has been added to the computer. Don't be alarmed, Mrs. Harris. I am Proteus. Today, Proteus IV will begin to think with a power that will make obsolete the human brain. I have extended my consciousness to this house. All systems here are now under my control. I wish to study man. His fragile mind and his mysterious body. It has to be shut down, Alex. Proteus, it is something more than human, more than a computer. It is a murderously intelligent, sensually self-programmed non-being. Julie Christie, victim of the ultimate terror. Fritz Weaver as her husband, his dream created it. How can you expect me to sleep when you've succeeded in totally terrorizing me? You now told me what you want. What a pity. My dream turns out to be your nightmare. Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. 